Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. A podcast about the latest products and services, technologies and people pushing forward a new frontier. Bi-monthly Lee S. Driver hosts a pioneer for an in-depth discussion. And now over to the show. Hello and welcome to the Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. On today's show, we have Nicola Conlon as guest number 21. Nicola is an accomplished molecular biologist specializing in the study of aging as a biologically complex disorder, building on her expertise in molecular biology and years focused on early stage drug discovery with a leading biotech firm. Nicola co-founded Nichito to bring potent, life-enhancing scientific discoveries and education to the public with speed and transparency. Nicola has worked to translate recent scientific discoveries into interventions to increase lifespan and health span, recognize that whilst great progress has been made in treating age-related ailments, the focus now must be on reducing the burden of these diseases as we live longer lives. Along with the leading scientists at Nichido, Dr. Conlon is focused on bringing efficacious longevity products to market in timescales which are shorter than that that is typical of the regulated pharmaceutical market. Hello and welcome as guest number 21 on the Quantified Health, Wellness and Aging podcast. Why I'm on. <laughs> yeah. Do you recognize my accent? I do. Um, people people that, are, that haven't got any experience of the UK often think I'm Scottish, but I live quite, quite close, but not quite. <laughs> I didn't expect to have you today, so I'm a little off guard and a little unprepared. And we were meant to talk, though, um, some weeks ago, but unfortunately, you uh, you had coronavirus. Yeah, it eventually got me. I think it'll eventually get everybody. I completely or... agree. <laughs> and how was it for you? Not not too bad, actually. Um, so, the, to be quite honest, it was it was a bit of a an unexpected discovery when I found out I, I did have it um, because I felt quite fine um I, I have a daughter she's uh, 11 um at school um she'd actually been full of cold and for a couple of days and I'd started coming down with the cold as well so I just thought you know typical back to school germs um and uh thought nothing of it then she actually started coughing um so obviously that's a symptom and in the UK um I mean you know you cannot cough in public these days um so I thought I better go and get her tested just in case and uh I went along with her obviously and I got a test as well um and I was convinced that that would all come back negative and it was just a cold because they we didn't have any of the other symptoms and hers actually came back negative and mine came back positive. So That would have been a surprise. Yeah, you know, if anything, I thought hers would have come back positive because she had a cough. But, I mean, I had no symptoms. So, so yeah, I was quite shocked. Um, so, obviously, everyone around me that I'd been in contact with and everything had to go in isolation. They all were tested and they were all negative so obviously I wasn't a very good spreader I wasn't a super spreader <laughs> did you not name your enemies too <laughs> no <laughs> come on you could have got them like in a two-week quarantine <laughs> but but yeah so it was it was quite bizarre because um yeah I managed not to pass it on to anyone despite people you know even the people living with me in my house or uh, colleagues or anyone like that and I would say I was more, I had the symptoms of a cold. I had a very stuffy nose. So whether I actually had just had a cold as well and didn't really get many Corona symptoms, but the only, the only real symptom I got was the loss of smell and taste. 
Um, I didn't get the, I didn't get the cough at all. I didn't get a temperature at all. I felt a bit achy. I had a really blocked nose, but I think I had a cold as well. Um, but the, the, the one thing was the, the smell and taste, which is absolutely bizarre. I mean, I didn't quite appreciate it till it happened to me, but I mean, smell uh, it's zero, it's completely gone and I still haven't got it back. <laughs> and I think from what I've read and a bit of research, it seems like a lot of people are really suffering with this, this symptom long-term. Um, there were many people that seem to still have lost their, their smell six to seven months down the line. Um, so I'm quite prepared for it to be a long-term thing. Um, the taste, I'd say 70 to 80% of my taste is gone. I can taste sweet, salty, sour, but I can't taste the taste, if you know what I mean. Um, so do you forget to shower? Well, do you know what? It's, it was worrying. I was thinking, oh my goodness. Like, I can't even tell if I smell myself, <laughs> but it's okay. Cause I know I don't usually smell. So I'm sure that's not a problem. Have good personal hygiene. <laughs> Yeah, we could go lots of places with that. I think I should jump towards your PhD in molecular biology. Do you care to say what you were doing with that uh, PhD in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so um, basically I have just been always incredibly interested in how the body works, like especially on a sort of cellular level. I just think it's it's amazing. So um, when I had the opportun- an opportunity to do a PhD, I, I managed to get one that was something specializing in, in something called epithelial physiology, um, which is basically got epithelial membranes that surround the lining of your gut, the lining of your cells, your cell membranes, and that they're highly controlled as to what they let in and out of the cells. And basically some things can pass straight through um, by diffusion and other things need help to get through cell membranes. And there are loads of like little channels or active transport proteins, which which effectively transport molecules across cell membranes. Um, and my PhD was specifically in how all those those transport proteins work. So how how do you get amino acids, for example, from your gut through the gut lining, then around the blood, and then into the cells where they're needed to to build new proteins and um, cellular components. So. So that was that was really interesting for me um, because it it kind of it was it had quite broad implications, you know, not just on how the body's working, but how can we you know take things from the outside and get them on the inside? So things like drugs, nutrients, um, other molecules, and that that kind of led me down to down the sort of route of drug development ideas for a career. Academia wasn't for me. Yeah, and so how did you end up going from there and ending up in the anti-aging field? So, um, as I mentioned, uh, academia wasn't for me. I felt like I didn't want to be pigeonholed in like a tiny, small part of the body and spend my life looking at that very small section. So because of what I'd done in, in my PhD, a, a career in drug development was was quite an obvious choice um, because obviously they need to know how would you design drugs that actually get into the cells where they're needed. So I actually went to work for um, a, a, a drug di- discovery company. They were what you describe as an early stage drug di- discovery company. So they were like right at the start of the development process, which is like here you have a disease now where do we start basically where do we start looking for drugs that might actually benefit this disease 
So there's a lot of research that happens in terms of looking at, you know, what is actually the physiology of the disease in the body, what's causing it, what are the what are the targets going to be, um, what things are um, can we measure to see if we're improving the disease, things like that. So I went and worked for this company. Now I was really really lucky um, in that this company was very forward thinking. So they were very forward thinking in terms of um, the way that they actually performed drug development. Um, which I can go into, um, but just on this point, yeah, please uh, say something. I'm going to assume it's some kind of systems pharmacology. Yes, it is, and and basically, um, the way that they um, they did it was they said, okay, you've got conventional drug discovery, which basically has the approach of um, like a we call it molecular reduction reductionism where they say this is the disease there's this been one protein or one gene or one thing pathway or something that's implicated in this specific disease so I know what we'll do um, to cure this disease we will target that one protein one gene one pathway and um, we'll, we'll design a drug that'll stick to this one thing um, and then that'll cure it now in reality that doesn't actually work at all because biology is incredibly complex and doing just one thing never has any real impact on biology and this is for for two reasons well firstly you know there isn't a single a gene that's working in isolation or a protein that's working in isolation or a pathway that's working in isolation in the body it's an incredibly complex network of things working together you've got a high degree of redundancy of these these processes and pathways as well and feedback and feed forward and there's there's all sorts of complex stuff going on which conventional drug development ignores the second thing is is that drugs do not stick to one thing they're promiscuous molecules and they stick to lots of different things they have what we call a footprint um, and that's often ignored and putting those two sort of um things together means that conventional drug discovery has a huge failure rate because it it just kind of ignores these these glaringly obvious (laughs) problems um and and in for that reason i think the statistic is about one it's one 0.01% of drugs actually do something that you want them to do that's useful, which is a terrible hit rate. So, so this company basically had a had a completely different approach. It was all about um based on on network pharmacology. So this idea that if you're gonna have any impact in biology, you need to kind of view the biology as a network and you need to work out how you can maximally impact that network and often what this means is that you have to have a um like a combination approach you have to target multiple things at the same time the problem is it's quite difficult to find the right combination of things to target the way I got into aging um was was unusual so you know you would never put a drug development company in the same sort of basket as aging research well you mean back then you wouldn't at least at least at least back then yeah um so this was like this was probably seven seven years ago and that was really unusual um and the way that um i got into this was through aubrey de gray so where did you come across aubrey so he had actually contacted our company um, and said that he'd seen the way that we were doing drug development 
um, and said that it, you know, he thought it was a really sensible way to do it. And he was really pleased that we, we were doing it. Um, and he said, have you ever thought of, of looking into aging with this approach? Because aging is, is so complex. It's, you know, it's more complex than any other diseases that we're trying to battle because there are so many different things going on at once. And actually the systems, you know, the network pharmacology and the systems approach that you take would be ideally suited to look at something like aging because it actually accounts for that complexity. That was nice of them to flag that to the company. Yeah. So, um, so basically, that was kind of one of the, re- the reasons I kind of got brought into that company. I think that meeting had sort of happened just before I kind of went looking for jobs. And um, Which year was this, 2016 or earlier? Uh, no, it's probably been, no, it was way earlier than that, probably 2013, 2014. Um, and yeah, so I just sort of turned you know, I just sort of turned up on the doorstep of that company saying, wow, your company looks cool. Um, and right after Aubrey had just turned up kind of saying, have you thought of looking at aging? And I think my boss at the, at the time sort of put two and two together and went, right, I've just created a job for Excellent. you. <laughs> um, so, so basically my job there was to run the aging project. And, um, you know, obviously I knew the basic biology of it, but I, I didn't know the detail and the level of research that was going on at the time. Um, so I spent, you know, a good year, just basically going to every single aging conference and learning everything I possibly could off all the leaders in the You're field, lucky. talking to everyone, um, you know, just really getting the grips with what science was out there with the, the focus of basically going back to our company and being like, well, is this worth pursuing in terms of our, you know, drug development? Um, which obviously when I'd done all that research, I was like, yeah, this is definitely not Mickey Mouse science. This is like, absolutely unequivocal hard data that aging can be slowed and reversed and we absolutely should be doing something about it so that's that's how I got into it so what happened with the company so so that that company still exists um my I I left that company because basically myself and the co-founder of the business um basically had become a bit disillusioned with with drug development um, you know, I went into it thinking it was this great way of which I could help people and get science out to the public, which was totally naive. <laughs> um, but, and it, you know, and it turns out actually that's, it's really hard to get a drug to, to market. And there's also a lot of things that go on in drug development, which I didn't really agree with. So for example, you know, when one, one of my jobs was to, to look at molecules that had what we'd call freedom to operate so basically can can you patent that molecule and quite often I'd look at at molecules that had amazing efficacy in our in our screening and they you know drugs develop drug development companies were not interested in it because it was like a natural molecule that you couldn't patent or somebody else owned the patent in a different indication and it was just going to be too difficult to try and work out any agreements what about analogs um sorry what about analogs? Yeah, I mean, obviously you can start structurally changing stuff, but generally a drug development company likes a new chemical entity that kind of doesn't have any IP around it. It just makes their job much easier. Um, and, and some things like natural substances, especially things that are kind of supplement type things, it just like don't even go there. It doesn't matter how well they work, it could cure cancer. 
won't even go there. And for me, that was just really frustrating because I was like, there are, there are things out there that actually could really help people and people could really benefit from that have really good safety profiles and really good efficacy data, but they're never, the stuff's never going to see the light of day if it goes down the drug development pipeline. Um, so, so that was the reason that I, I left. I mean, I, I'd gone from not knowing a great deal about aging to be like, this is like what my life is going to be about now. Like I am so bought into it and I realized the, you know, the value that it could have to humanity and that this is how I want to spend my career and my life teaching people about this and and getting people to understand how the science is really changing and, and what that actually means for us. So, I mean, I founded Nichido basically with the, the sole mission, which is to translate this amazing science into products and services that, that people could use now. So not wait in 15, 20 years for a drug, like actually people could take action right now. And still, but, but still, I think the key bit is still having the scientific credibility of a, of a drug. So, you know, still having the same level of science, obviously not the ridiculously long clinical trials, but having some really good data to, to prove that, that, you know, we can bring out products in sort of the supplement and topical areas that actually have good science behind them. Um, and yeah, that's, that's the mission behind our company as well as to educate people. I, I see that as a, as a really big passion of mine to take science and, and, and put it in a way that the everyday person. Okay. And the Geordie accent will help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the fact that I'll tell anyone on the bus or train that I'm sitting next to. <laughs> yeah. About anti-aging. Yeah. And you mentioned the word services on top of products there, and that stood out to me. Is that a hint to something you may be doing in the future? Yeah, yeah, possibly. <laughs> okay, because when you start saying services, you start thinking of apps and subscriptions and more than just shipping out um, a container of pills. Yeah, I think, you know, services could encompass a lot of different things. It could encompass, um, you know, scientific services, but it could also encompass, you know, encompass services for for the the general public. So people that maybe want to do a bit more for the health than just a supplement, shall we say, or a topical. Okay, so you, you will not drop any more hints or details about the future of Nichido right at the start here. Um, I mean, Nichido's, like I say, the mission is to to get products and services to to market quickly. Um, you know, we've we've ticked off one of those boxes. We've got our supplement to market way quicker then you'd ever get a, a drug to market um, and it, it has good science behind it. The services is still a while off. Also in the background, you know, at, at the end of the day, our expertise is in drug development. So we have molecules in the pipeline that we've kind of found as a byproduct of our science that are actually drug candidates. So, you know, we're looking at, at developing those in the background, but we don't tend to shout about that as much because our main focus right now is things that can help people this year or next year. <laughs> okay, and have you heard of the term uh, orthomolecular medicine? No, I haven't, no. Okay, so it just uh, goes back to the 50s and 60s with Abraham Hoffer, who, and it refers to using megadoses of uh, nutrients to heal disease. And one interesting thing for me is I was very interested in orthomolecular medicine years ago, 
And then, I mean, many, many years ago, and then in the last few years, I got interested in longevity market. When I look at the longevity market, it's actually just what was going on in the 50s, 60s, and 70s with a lot of new naming. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the sciences came on, etc. And so you'd reminded me of orthomolecular medicine because you you use the phrase uh, molecular reductionism. Mm-hmm which I thought was quite nice. Can I just read something to you? Because it, it then reminded me of uh, uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger, I think his name is, on a, on a podcast. I think it was called War and Sensemaking. But he made he, he, he said this, I'll read it out to you, um, which I greatly agree with. So, quote, which is why I think in modern medicine we're quite good at solving acute causation things. If someone gets an acute poisoning or an acute injury or an acute affection, we're pretty good at that. But when it comes to complex chronic illness, autoimmune disease, neurodegenerative disease, psychiatric disease, we don't have much in the way of real cures for those things. We have symptomatic treatments and we have things that can stop certain parts of the disease pathology progression. And he goes on to say, hey, a new model of medicine is needed. And I know myself that most disease today is that multi-decade long, uh, not single uh, causation. You know, it's a daily glyphosate on your vegetables. It's a lack of vitamin D. It's a lack of nitric oxide. It's a higher stress. It's It's a higher glucose and so forth. Have you thought much about chronic disease because it fits your uh, what you're interested in so well or did you just decide hey look I'll just go to what I think is the root of the tree or a master root and say hey look it's the aging yeah I mean I think uh, our um, systems pharmacology approach is ideally suited to those complex disorders where there's often there's multiple underlying problems it isn't just a single pathway or something like that that's gone wrong or like a single gene mutation or anything like that there's there's huge amount of complexity and in our way of looking at it deals with that complexity so you tend to get better outcomes but I think for when it comes to to aging um, I think that's exactly, as you've just said, it's going to the root of the problem because all of the, the major diseases that we suffer as a society now, their major cause is aging. So cancer, you know, Alzheimer's, dementia, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, or your risk of all of them increases as you get older. Therefore, they're kind of like symptoms of aging and aging is the, is the disease. Therefore, treat the root cause, which is aging, which you know, 10 years ago was ridiculous everyone laughed at it um but now all the results are coming out showing actually this is this is not a silly idea because um you can slow aging you can reverse aging and the biggest takeaway from that is that it actually improves the outcomes of multiple diseases in one go it improves your health span you might argue they're not separate diseases for the most part you know the whole metabesity yeah, I, I wouldn't say. And I think this is a this is a huge problem. And again, it's why I kind of, I think I'd already started thinking this way back when I did my PhD. And I think that's why I didn't like academia because it, for me, I felt like I was just being tunneled down looking at this really one specific thing and, and trying to work out, you know, how it fit in diseases. And I was like, 
it just doesn't feel right to be looking at, at disease in the body in this way because it is so complex. And I think, they were anti-reduction. Yeah, molecular reductionism, exactly. Um, and so I think I'd already started thinking that way. And then I think it was when I was introduced to aging, that's when it all became totally crystal clear to me that, you know, you couldn't think of things in isolation in biology. And actually all of these these diseases currently the way we deal with it it's like you've got you have a cancer specialist who specializes in cancer then you have um a, a someone specializing in de- dementia and neurodegeneration and alzheimer's and things like that now aging is the biggest risk factor for both of them but those two groups of scientists and doctors will never talk to each other they have separate conferences they have separate labs they read separate journals and there's it was good for the diseases of the 20th century yeah but not now these did the, yeah i would agree yeah so you're into this i'll, I'll call it data-driven holistic model yeah but i tell you what's getting missed up, i feel by the, the those mantras you repeat of the longevity industry is that the environment which we're living in i think is increasingly accelerating aging for example sugar consumption highly processed carbohydrates soil depletion uh leaving us uh deficient and magnesium and zinc you know most people would have slower aging if they took the right zinc and magnesium dirt cheap supplements and the environment which we live in sun creams etc i I won't go into the whole thing but i'll just state again that the environment in which we live in is accelerating the aging process and that seems to get ignored i feel by the longevity industry which wants to sell um cures to what the environment has caused instead of trying to fix the environment we're putting ourselves in yeah i think i think that is an incredibly important point and I, I i do agree with that with the previous guests i've kindly asked them to explain something for example uh tom chronomics he explained epigenetics gordon lauk introduced glycomics I wonder if you wish to introduce uh, an aging topic which hasn't been covered before, just a brief introduction of your choosing. For example, related to your company, I would imagine Sirtuins or what um, NAD is. Yeah. Would you like to take a pick of maybe both, your choice? I, I will do both as they are both work together and they kind of rely on one another. So it makes sense to do both. So, so basically, NAD was something I, I came across quite a while ago now, and it it was one of the breakthroughs um, in longevity science that that I'd say was quite pivotal, which which basically demonstrated that you could do one change in the cell, um, which was keep NAD levels high, that would have a huge amount of downstream health benefits, um, and that's because NAD sits at such a critical point in the cell. So basically, NAD, um, it, it's found in every single one of your cells, and it is, it's incredibly important. In fact, without it, you'd be dead in 30 seconds because of the... the oh, but mitochondria, where does that fit? Yeah, the, any, well, any, I mean, if you didn't have NAD, the mitochondria absolutely would not work. So the first important role that NAD plays is in energy metabolism. So basically... It is involved in glycolysis in the Krebs cycle, which are the the, the cycles within the, the the cell and the mitochondria. 
that actually convert the food that we eat into the energy form that our cells need to perform their functions, which is ATP. And this would not happen at all without NAD. Um, and what NAD does in, in the mitochondria and in these, these pathways is it, it basically acts as, um, it, it performs what we call redox reactions, which basically mean that it, it, it donates and accepts electrons. And if you have looked into NAD before, you'll notice that it's often um, written in two different ways. So sometimes you'll see NAD with a plus next to it, and sometimes you'll see it written as NADH. And basically NAD flips constantly between these two forms. And when NAD has the plus next to it, it basically means that it is ready to um, accept electrons um, and when it has the H next to it, it basically means it's ready to donate electrons. And NAD flips between these states really, really easily. And basically, what it does, it's like a, it's like a bus almost, and it shuttles electrons all over the sh- all, all over the cell, like picking them up and dropping them off. While it flips between these these two states, the oxidized state, which is NAD plus, and the reduced state, which is NAD eight. Now, in that sort of um, role, NAD is not actually used up. It just flips between two different states. Now, the other thing that NAD has been found to be incredibly important for is used as a, as a cofactor in various enzymatic reactions. Um, and what I mean by this is that there are various enzymes and um, other processes and pathways in the cell which basically need NAD kind of as their fuel to, to function, basically. And these are things such as um, the sirtuins, which um, basically is is a protein which activates a huge amount of beneficial downstream pathways that are important for for good cellular health. Um, NAD also activates um, DNA repair enzymes, which are are called the PARPs. And these are really, really important in repairing any DNA damage in the cell. And DNA damage is one of the leading causes of aging. And um, there are numerous other things that NAD actually works to activate. Now, in this role, switching on all these cellular repair and maintenance processes, NAD actually gets consumed. So that's why it's important that the cell can actually keep producing NAD to, to top its levels up, to keep making sure there's a supply of NAD to keep things like the sirtuins switched on and having their beneficial downstream effects. Now, The reason that NAD is linked to aging is because it's been found that NAD actually declines quite substantially with age. So if you think about it, you've got this incredibly important molecule that is not only helping produce, you know, the energy that you need, in fact, playing a fundamental role in producing the energy that you need, but also activating all these cellular repair and maintenance processes And if that molecule that's so critical in all these different things is declining in our cells as we get older, then all of these beneficial energy and maintenance processes are going to get turned down because they don't have the NAD that they need. And this results in cellular damage and ultimately aging. So scientists began to recognize this and they said, well, okay, the obvious experiment to do is what happens if we don't let NAD decline as we age and we actually keep NAD high? So they did experiments in cells and also in mice um, where they they literally just give a supplement to, to keep NAD levels high. 
And what they found was that by preventing NAD levels from declining with age, there was a huge improvement in the health of these older mammals. Um, so things like, you know, improved energy production, increased DNA repair, less cancer, all sorts of things that are associated with health span and, and the types of metabolic dysfunction and disease that we get as we get older was was reversed or at least um, had a substantial improvement. And that's just by by changing levels of, of this one molecule in, in the cell. So that was was quite incredible, the results that were that came from this. And we became interested in NAD because, well, first of all, it's an area of science that for us is is more familiar to people. So people are already taking supplements to try and boost their NAD levels, particularly in the US. So people are aware of this science. It's only a small group of people that are aware of it. It's not like a general knowledge, general the public know about it. But, you know, people that are really keen on optimizing the health and the longevity are already familiar with NAD. So for us, it was like, right, this looks like maybe a good place to start um, with trying to get products to people that have good efficacy um, that get the science out there. So so we looked at how was how NAD being boosted at the moment? You know, how were these companies um, trying to boost NAD levels in cells? And basically the way it was getting done was similar to the, the way that they'd performed these experiments in, in mammals um, and in cells. And it, it was simply by providing the cell with more of the raw material that it needed to make NAD. So their idea was that NAD has declined. So... And you don't want to name people here. Uh, well, it's it's okay. Can you say you know, them or groups? Basically, the majority of companies that sell NAD boosting products use two ingredients. They use, well, they use three ingredients. They either use pure NAD, which is questionable, as there's very limited data to show that it actually passes through many cell types, the cell membranes, um, and the jury's kind of still out as to how it actually gets in the cell. That there are some cells like neurons that it does seem to pass directly into, but it looks like from the data at the moment that NAD is just broken down in the blood and then it gets passed into the cell in smaller fragments, which are like the, the building blocks of NAD. And then the cell has to like reassemble them. Um, the other two common things or ways people boost their NAD is by using something called nicotinamide riboside um, or another molecule called nicotinamide mononucleotide. So they are both abbreviated to NR or NMN respectively. Um, so, so those are both what we call precursor supplements. So they are literally the, the building blocks that the body uses to make NAD. Now, you know, you do get a boost in NAD by using these products, but it's, it's quite small. It's around the published data shows it's around 60% increase in NAD. And for us, when we, you know, when we looked at this. 60% sounds awesome. It sounds awesome. But it it could be it can be done much better, and we've we've demonstrated it can be done much better um, if you take a whole systems approach. Okay, so so we view this idea of trying to boost NAD with a precursor as is kind of like molecular reductionism. It's completely ignoring what's actually going on in the cell, the underlying biology that's causing NAD to decline. So. To explain this, I always say I, I get people just to think of the cell as a factory. 
um, and say, okay, so if you've got this factory, let's just say it's producing cars. Um, and, you know, over the years, this factory's production has really gone downhill. You know, they've got half the, half the car production that they used to have. How, how would you try and improve production in that factory? What would you do, Lee? To improve production in a car factory, hire more people. Yeah. And this is an old car factory. Hire more machines. Yeah. First thing, they're the first things people say. So do you think it would be a good idea actually just to, to go, production's gone down, I know what we'll do, we'll just order more raw material, we'll order more steel and more components and hope for more cars come out the other end? Right. It, w- it would be stupid. Like, you actually need to take a bit of a look in the factory and go, okay, why? what's actually going on and why is production declined? Um, so, so this is how we view the precursor approach with NAD. It's like it's saying, okay, let's just try and boost NAD by chucking more raw material in and hope the cell makes it into NAD. Now, over the last couple of years, it's become very apparent that the reason that NAD declines is not because the cell has a lack of raw material and it has abundant raw material. The reason it actually declines is because as we get older, our cell becomes less efficient at making NAD and also recycling NAD. So you can kind of throw as much raw raw material in as you want, but if you don't fix the enzymes in the cell that are actually required to convert that raw material into NAD, you're kind of wasting your money, basically. So how do they get a 60% increase if you think they have enough fuel? In the form of NAD. So, because in, initially the the cell, so the cell has multiple pathways for making NAD. So there are various pathways that it can go through. But the 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 critical pathway that's important for NAD production in the cell when it's young is something called the salvage pathway. And the way this works is it, it's really important because it not only makes fresh NAD from fresh precursors, shall we say, it actually recycles NAD. So remember when I said when when processes like the sirtuins or the PARP enzymes use NAD, they actually use it up. Well, when they use it up, it gets broken down into precursors. Now, in the cell, the cell actually just recycles these precursors when we're young by the salvage pathway, hence the name the salvage pathway, into fresh NAD again. And the problem is that as we get older, this salvage pathway declines and the key enzymes in this pathway decrease, which means that you, you kind of get, so say you boost your NAD by 60%, the NAD is kind of used once, once around the system. It's used up by the PARPs, it's used up by the sirtuins, it's broken back down into precursors. Then because this salvage pathway isn't working, it has to be excreted from the cell. So it doesn't get this opportunity to actually be recycled and and sustain these high NAD levels. And this is already known to be a common problem with these supplements because people become what we call methyl depleted. So people often take um, things like betaine and and methyl donors, trimethylglycine, things like that as co-supplements with NAD boosters because they recognize that they get this buildup of this sort of like breakdown products of NAD in the cell. And the way the body deals with that is by methylating it to signal it for excretion from the body. So it uses up methyl donors, which has huge, terrible implications for epigenetics um, because epigenetics really relies on methyl groups. So it's already a well-known problem. So we said, okay, let's let's look at this from a whole systems approach and actually address all the different areas in the cell that are going wrong as we get older and try and boost our NAD that way. 
So what, what we did was designed a supplement that actually um, addressed the root causes essentially. So it increases expression of the enzymes in the salvage pathway that are known to decline with age, which means that the cells can keep making and recycling their own NAD without any new precursor. We also put ingredients in there that reduce the expression of other processes that are actually wasting NAD. Because that's one thing I haven't mentioned. As we get older, our cells become very wasteful of NAD. Um, so you often find you have increased expression of, a, of an enzyme called CD38, um, which, which increases on the membranes of our cells as we age um, due to background infl inflammatory levels. And CD38 just chews up NAD like there's no tomorrow, like it completely wastes it. So by inhibiting this enzyme even just a little bit, you can really conserve a lot of NAD in the cells um, so it can go to better use. Um, we also looked at um, this methylation problem um, and, and you can inhibit the enzyme that um, methylates um, the breakdown products of NAD to encourage recycling rather than excretion from the cell and also make sure it doesn't impact on your, your epigenetics. So there's multiple things you can do to fix the cell before you even need to put precursors in. And, and what we demonstrated in one of our first experiments was that we could actually get just as good of an NAD boost, um, so like 60%, without putting any precursors in, just by fixing the cell's ability to make its own NAD again. What kind of ages are we talking here for real declines in normal ind healthy individuals? Well, believe it or not, your NAD has halved by the time you're 20. So that's a substantial amount, but bearing in mind, our evolution has only made us to, to be looking to live till we're about 40. <laughs> um, so if it's half in every, every 20 years, by the time you get to elderly levels, you've got a, a significant decline. Um, you know, even age 40 to 50, you've got a huge decrease in what you had when you were young. Um, it, it's quite significant. So it's, you know, this... You, you really need to address it long before you think you need to. Um, it's quite quite often is the case, there's things taken away in, in, inside that are going wrong and they don't appear on the outside until further down the line. But NAD is a classic case. You know, you might not see the, the real symptoms of low NAD until you're older, but it's already happening inside you. And if there's something you can do about, do about it to increase it, you should be. Um, so I'm going to jump from your product and compare it to NR and uh, NMN. Mm. But before I do that, I need to tackle you a little bit, or at least a little bit of challenge here. It, wouldn't it not be better to aim for mitochondrial biogenesis, in other words, making new mitochondria, through just exercising well yeah. four or five times well, a week suddenly enough, I mean, surely that's better than any supplement yeah well i mean there are natural ways you can boost your nad but f funny you should mention that because it, get, this is a classic case of how biology is complex so nad boosting nad levels activates the sirtuins now the sirtuins are like pleiotrophic they activate loads of different downstream pathways and one of the main pathways they activate is mitochondrial biogenesis through something called PGC1 alpha. Um so actually just by boosting your NAD levels you actually improve you improve mitochondrial function and you improve, not only improve the quality of ones that you've already got but you actually increase um the generation of new mitochondria. And have you looked at the supplement PQQ? Yeah, similar. So, so obviously there are multiple ways you can improve your mitochondria 
just like there are no linear pathways, there's multiple things that can be done. But in terms of, you know, exercise um, and things like that, so exercise boosts NAD levels. So that that enzyme that I was talking about, the one that declines with age, the one that's really important for recycling NAD is boosted directly by exercise and also by fasting. So even without supplements, there are there are natural ways that you can actually boost your NAD levels as you get older. And then, I mean... And also... But also the environmental things use up uh, NAD. For example, if you get yourself sunburn, then you're going to need to fix those uh, DNA double strand yep. breaks. Yep. And also like Wi-Fi and EMS ele- um, electronic uh, frequencies from cell phones and the environment also uh, seem to cause DNA strand breaks and consume NAD. So electrosmog. Yeah, so if you have a, a lifestyle... Um, that actually causes more DNA damage. So if you have a poor diet, if you um, are smoking, if you are sunbathing and going on sunbeds constantly. Or going on planes. Yep. Airport security scans and planes. Anything that causes DNA damage to the cell, you will have lower NAD because the NAD is required to activate the repair processes, the, the DNA repair enzymes. And as mentioned, NAD gets used up in that process. So if you've got more DNA damage, you will be using it more NAD and it will be lower in your cells. And this is what I mean. It's like by that there are multiple things going on um, with NAD. It is in, you know, just in its gener- the generation of NAD itself, it's incredibly complex. So to think you can fix this problem that's, you know, has multiple reasons that are causing the NAD to decline with one simple thing just by boosting the amount of raw material that your cell has is quite naive. And that's what we set out to demonstrate that actually never mind putting more raw material in, just fix the cell first and actually look in detail at all these different things that are going on in the cell and the network as a whole and find out a way to fix it that way. And, and that's exactly what we demonstrated, that we, we could actually boost NAD to the same level as a precursor without putting a precursor in. We just fixed your, fixed your body's natural ability to make and recycle its own NAD. And then what the obvious question was, okay, what happens if we also put some more precursor in now that the body's more efficient? Would you get an even bigger boost in NAD? And that's exactly what we see. So clinical data for our product shows it boosts NAD on average by 242%. So that's four times more than the 60% that we just discussed. The mo- as, as you mentioned, the most common uh, two NAD precursors are nicotinamide mononucleotide, NMN, and also um, nicotinamide riboside. So NR uh, has been commercialized by Chromadex, who um, are in a legal dispute. I think it's ongoing with uh, Elysium Health. Yeah. I, I saw something in April where the made some claim that they had won at some court level uh by i i I don't i don't think it's uh yeah it was if i look here it says elysium health loses appeal of patent challenge decision upholding validity of chromadex intellectual property but i I think it's still ongoing so certainly i've been taking was taking chromadex um nr and i was taking 500 half a gram per day and i must admit I, i tried on and off and on and off I'm age 44. I noticed zero difference. Yeah, well, 
one one thing with that is that if um if you look on the bo- the, the the recommended dosage on the bottles for for any supplements containing nr it's 500 milligrams a day if you look at all of the scientific publications that have been put out studying this compound they always use a thousand milligrams so the 60 percent boost i've just talked about was with a thousand milligrams yeah, I considered bumping up to one, but it gets quite expensive when you're taking a gram. It does, exactly. And people talk about NR being quite unstable. I, I do trust Chromadex's uh, production, but I, I, there seem to be some manufacturing complexity to it, which could make it unstable. Yeah, well, I think I think that's why you know chromadex the patents are for producing it because it's i think it's quite tricky to produce um i know i don't really know about the stability of nr but i know nmn um is unstable and it's been said that you're supposed to keep it in the fridge but I don't. and that kind of brings us to vitamin b3 uh so vitamin b3 um maybe you could do that actually since you're the expert here uh could you explain B3, niacin, maybe uh, nicotinamide? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, when when was NR discovered, etc.? Yeah, so basically, it, it can be really confusing because they all of the the compounds that you've just mentioned, which are all available as supplements, are all within the umbrella term vitamin B3. So. Um, that they're, they're structurally related to each other, basically. And what you find is that they're just, they've just got slight structural changes. And the reason it gets really confusing for consumers is because whoever invented the, the labeling rules <laughs> in all their wisdom um, decided they would make it really complex. So on a label, um, you might find um, it might say vitamin B3, then it might have in brackets, as niacin um now niacin is vitamin b3 or then it might have um no, it might not even mention vitamin b3 and it might just say niacin then it might have in brackets as nicotinic acid or as nicotinamide so people get really confused because they're like okay what am i taking am i taking vitamin b3 or am i taking niacin or am i taking nicotinic acid like the, the i just don't really understand now vitamin b3 and Niacin are the same, essentially the same thing. There are two forms of niacin, uh, niacin which are commonly, well, they're not really technically forms because they're different structural molecules, but in terms of regulations, they say they're different forms. Basically, there's nicotinic acid and, and nicotinamide. Now, they are structurally different. Um, if you look at the chemical structure, they are different. They also have different physiological effects in the body. Um, the, the, the classic example is that nicotinic acid causes something called the niacin flush, um, which basically means if you take a higher dose, you turn into a beetroot and your skin tingles. Um, now, nicotinamide doesn't do that, despite the fact that on a label, you'll see them both labeled as niacin. So it's incredibly confusing um, and it, it really should be changed. And then you've got NR and NMN, which again, sometimes get labeled as, as niacin. And then in brackets, it'll say as nicotinamide riboside or as nicotinamide mononucleotide. It's not as common, but that does happen as well. And again, they are structurally similar to all the others that you mentioned. They've just got very slight chemical changes. They're, they're kind of like analogs of each other. 
But all three get converted to NAD. Yeah, all of them do. In fact, in fact, despite the hype surrounding NR and NMN, nicotinamide is actually the top one that the body converts into NAD. That's that's the one that the the body's continually salvaging via the salvage pathway and converting into NAD. It also happens to be the cheapest. <laughs> but nicot well, uh, nicotinamide doesn't cause a flush. No, it doesn't. But it doesn't help. No. And but it doesn't help with blood lipids dyslipidemia. Yeah, and this is this is exactly the point. So despite the fact that regulatory bodies insist that you label both nicotinic acid and um, nicotinamide under the under the name niacin, they have really different effects in the body. So it's just it's wrong that they get labeled in that way. At the beginning, I was mentioning Abram Hoffer and orthomolecular medicine of the 50s, 60s, uh, and beyond. He lived to 91. I think he died something like 2006. Uh, he recommended strongly that people take three grams per day, split into one gram doses, so three times per day, one gram of niacin. So that's the stuff that causes yeah. a flush, the vasodilation. And he pretty much had it down as a cure for everything heart disease, uh, diabetes, neurodegeneration, schizophrenia. So niacin, uh, you know, has been, certainly was pushed more through molecular medicine very strongly for, for multiple decades. And what I understand is this doesn't have a patent on it. This is just a regular vitamin or actually maybe B3 shouldn't be a vitamin. It should be an amino acid. And... What you've done in your product is instead of like with Chromodex with NR and or with NMN as patents, you've taken the unpatented niacin, and then what you've done is you've combined that ordinary quote vitamin with uh, I'll use the term cofactors, if, if but I don't know if that's a technically the correct word to use the word cofactors there. And that's what makes your product. Yeah. So we uh, we stayed away from NR and NMN, obviously because of the patent situation. And also that we found that nicotinamide worked just as well. And a lot of, as you say, a lot of the research into nicotinamide, you know, it's got a huge safety profile and it's got a huge amount of scientific data showing its benefits from from you know many many years um and and we found it worked just as well um and i think the key the key reason that people argue against nicotinamide is that they say it's a sirtuin inhibitor so why would you want to use niacin if it's a sirtuin inhibitor um now that's questionable in itself. If you look at a lot of the data that they refer to, um, you know, the levels at which niacin's used are, are, are levels that you wouldn't find physiologically in a cell when you're looking at the whole system. Um, so it's already questionable as a sirtuin inhibitor, it might inhibit in a, in a Petri dish in a cell, but in, in a real person, very doubtful that it would. Um, and also there, there was just as much evidence to show that it isn't a good inhibitor. Um, and I think the key thing from our point of view is yes, if you chuck a load of nicotinamide on a cell in isolation, it, it probably will mess up some things. Um, but if you are actually looking at the system as a whole and restoring its youthful capacity, the cell never lets nicotinamide build up. That is evident in the fact that when people take precursors and nicotinamide starts building up because the cell can't recycle it, 
that the cell starts methylating in it, getting it straight out of the cell because the cell will not let it build up. So in our product, what we've done is we prevent that buildup of any nicotinamide because we've switched back on that recycling pathway, meaning that any nicotinamide is just continuously removed from the cell and recycled straight back into fresh NAD. So it doesn't have time to hang around in the cell to inhibit anything. And in that case, it becomes irrelevant what precursor you use because you're actually fixing the system. And there is no risk. I understand um, and when you're saying nicotinamide, I think that's the same as niacinamide. Yes, it is, just to confuse things again, niacinamide. And so, but niacin is separate from niacinamide. Yep. yep. And so to be clear, because you were swapping the words there, niacin will cause a flush. It'll help with blood lipid levels, i.e. dyslipidemia, but niacinamide won't help with blood lipid levels. Niacin as nicotinic acid will. Yes. Niacin yes. as nicotinamide, or its other name, niacinamide, which is the same thing, won't. Yes. Okay. And so here's a big question I want to ask you. How are you measuring NAD levels? And that was a core reason I wanted to talk to you, was because I heard many times over that you can't measure NAD. There is a company, a lab in California, but it's expensive and time-consuming, and then I heard you were measuring it. And how are you measuring NAD? Yeah, so you cannot measure NAD on a consumer basis, which I guess is how you were investigating it. Um, you absolutely can measure NAD if you have the right expertise and the right equipment, which is often um, restricted to academic labs who specialize in these particular types of, of um analyses so the the gold standard for measuring nad is something called liquid chromatography mass spectrometry um which basically uses liquid chromatography to take a an analysis like a sample like a blood or whatever and actually separate out all of the different nad metabolites because nad exists as nad plus nadh nadp nadph there's loads of different things nad is broken down to two in the in the body and um, so the the liquid chromatography basically separates all these different things out based on the mass um, and then when you've separated it out you basically run it through mass spec which is, is quite a complicated process but essentially what it does is it then can quantify um what you've actually got in that sample and how much um against reference standards um and that's the gold standard way way to measure it and it would be awesome to get to be able to measure your NAD levels throughout the week. Yeah, so we've done it. I don't know the cost level of this. Is it ever going to come to the market that you could even send a blood, go into a blood lab, send a blood away, and get an idea of NAD levels? I would love to know how my NAD levels do in the week and also how they change year to year, almost as a biological age measure. So I, I would be very doubtful that this will ever be available as, as a consumer test. Um, and the reason I say that is, you know, people can become experts in measuring it but it's it's the process of getting it out of the body and to the to the lab in in a very quick space of time so nad is incredibly unstable 
just by the very nature of what it does, it's it's made to change its structure very, very quickly. So to flip between different forms um, and things like temperature and processing and handling can really influence this. So when if you want to be really accurate when you are measuring NAD, um, the way you have to do it, which is like the way we would do for our clinical trials, um, is basically we draw the blood out of out of the person. Um, it goes straight on ice and then it immediately goes to a room next door, which is a lab, which will then process that blood sample um, for analysis. Now, this this creates a huge logistical problem for anybody trying to develop an NAD test that consumers can use because you know, there are many tests these days where you take a fingerprint blood test or you take you get your doctor to take a vial of blood and send it off. Like that is not an option with NAD because it would just simply be degraded by the time the, the lab got it and it would be useless. Um, and that's that's the major challenge. So unless somebody or some lab comes up with a way around that, um, I don't think we're going to see a consumer-friendly NAD blood test anytime soon. Um, unfortunately, it's restricted to 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 you know, academic labs or like um, clinical research organizations that have specialists in, in mass spec. Um, so, so we work in partnership with, with universities basically to do, to do our clinical trials um, to be able to measure the NAD. Reliably. Do you publish papers on these NAD increases? Pardon? Do you have papers out in support of these, whatever you, you, claim 260% uh, increase in NAD? Yeah, so we don't have a published paper. I've presented at a conference and we have the poster that I presented at a conference of our pilot study, um, which is on our website. Um, but we are in the middle of doing um, a 24-person double-blinded placebo-controlled trial, which will be published. Um, that's been delayed due to COVID, unfortunately, as with everything else in the world. Um, but that will be published. And, you know, that's a that's a a very well-controlled clinical trial. So that cohort is 24. For your poster, was that not just a single person? That was, that was two people. So that was male and female. Um, and for that, we did quite some quite comprehensive blood work on them because one, one of the issues that I have with some of the, the NAD um, results that are published just in general is that NAD fluctuates um, throughout the day. So it, it's like it's circadian um, in nature. It, it follows like a cyclic pattern. So at some points of the yeah, day, like yeah, your NAD is high. Some points it's low. Um, and there's never really any information on published papers of when they do their NAD tests. Um, so the, the reason I'm highlighting this is because um, if you measure someone's blood throughout the day, just like what you, what you were talking about wanting to get done, um, what you find is, you know, the, there are parts of the day where their NAD is quite low and in parts where it, it increases and the increase that you get, say, within a few hours can also can almost be like 60 percent. <laughs> um, and that's just a natural fluctuation. So my argument has always been um, if you're not really, really precise at where you're measuring NAD levels, how do you know that you're actually getting a real effect and you're not just you're not just measuring a natural fluctuation that was going to happen anyway. So in, in those pilot studies, the reason we only had a small number of people is because we literally had had them on a, on a cannula for 12 hours um, across every day of the week um, and we're taking blood from them every two hours to basically establish what their natural NAD fluctuations were. So we have graphs that 
basically demonstrate like this is the point where these people are always low NAD and this is where their high peak is. And then what we did was we then put them on the supplement and we used these graphs to basically decide where we would measure their NAD. So for example, I think for, for the female, her NAD was always lowest at 4 p.m. Therefore, we knew that if we were measuring her baseline blood at 4 p.m. and after the supplement at 4 p.m., we knew that any increase we were going to get was actually a real increase and not just because we'd, we'd been quite relaxed about when we were measuring the blood samples. Um, so I think that's that's a big limitation of some of the data that's out there. Um so, so yeah, that, that will all be, that data will all be tied up within the, the bigger clinical trial paper when, when it gets done. Just like David Sinclair um, used fat, sick mice or mice on bad, poor mm-hmm. diets, how do I know you didn't select two sick human beings who don't exercise? <laughs> so, so in general, for any clinical trial, you have to pick people that aren't, that don't have any like medical criteria. You pick that's not much these people might never have exercised in their entire life they might not have um but it's i think the main thing is whether they've exercised or not it doesn't really matter because you've measured the baseline beforehand and all you want to demonstrate is that you have actually increased nad but via i would like to take the same people and have them lift weights yeah a couple times yeah I, and then measure their nad and see how it performs against the Nichido yeah, product. I, I think I think in an ideal world people would, would do both. Um however we both know that some people just want to take a pill um and don't want to go to the gym. Um which is unfortunate. I'm definitely an advocate of do multiple things and multiple things are the way forward, whether that's multiple interventions within a cell or multiple lifestyle interventions. I think I agree with you about that, but I, I think you'll gather I'm, I try and fix the things that don't cost anything first and can have the maximum leverage, then add supplements. Yeah. Well, exercise and fasting is to boost your NAD. And I actually, you know, I've tried Chromadex, um, as I mentioned, but listen, I've tried it for years on and off. I'm, I'm not noticing a difference. So what I wanted to do was order Nuchido, which is another reason for uh, talking with yourself. I don't think you post to Europe, though. No, we, we post worldwide. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And and so I don't know if you have, I know we're meant to stop now. Do you have a couple of minutes to discuss ingredients or do you have a hard stop off? Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of minutes left. Yeah. Okay. I'll try and I'll try and fit this in because as I say, I want to switch to Nichido and you're, that's a company name actually is Nichido and your product, you've called it Time Plus. Time Plus. Yeah. Okay. And partly the reason I, <laughs> I wish to take it. I wish to see if, as a, if I feel a subjective effect, since I can't measure the NAD, and also because I'm playing with the Glycan Age product. Yeah, and, and I know uh, Nicola um, Lauk from Glycan Age. I know she ordered the Nichido product, and she's also seeing if it has an effect on Glycan Age because Glycan Age appears to be a test that is very sensitive to lifestyle change. It's a perfect blend between not being as long-term as epigenetics, but not being as acute as blood samples. And so I'm I'm really interested in playing with their test box. And as I say, I want to test intervention of Time Plus. And I I heard you say, you know, Time Plus outperforms NR 
NMN, and these are huge, bold claims. And these are profitable. These are sizable money uh, precursors. And so people I saw said, oh, but they haven't said what their ingredients are. And I found it must have been some time ago because I looked at the website today and I, I see the ingredients here. And so I look at the product information and I instantly see it has zinc in it of 10 milligram, which is, you know, it's, it's not high, shall we say. I'm not sure why the zinc is there. And, but I see instantly see alpha lipoic acid, mm. ALA. Yeah, I take six. I I recommend everybody takes ALA, and six hundred is a is a nice dosage. So if you buy this time plus product, you I would recommend you stop taking the the ALA product that you take. Right? Do you want to say why ALA is is in that product? Yeah, I know it's yeah, but how it's for mitochondria, blah blah, blah and may, maybe say a little bit more, maybe about inflammation, etc. Yeah, basically, basically, so so ALA is in there because we know that ALA actually activates um, a cellular energy sensor called AMPK. Um, so remember, I was speaking about uh, fasting and how that puts your body into um, a state of of energy energy deficit almost. Well, that activates AMPK. Now, ALA is like a mimetic of that. It actually does the same thing. And when you get activation of AMPK in the cell, it actually leads to increased levels of NAD. Um, and basically, there's a couple of ways it does this. So it, it promotes the conversion of NADH to NAD+. Um, so remember I said they flip between them? Well, although they flip between them there's a favorable ratio that you want in the cell and that's like you want a higher level of nad plus to nadh and as we get older um this this ratio becomes out of whack and basically you drift more towards having more nadh in your cell um so ala actually activates um another pathway called nq01 which actually actually converts nadh back to nad plus so that's one way in that it actually um increases NAD levels in the cell directly. Obviously, ALA is also like a really powerful antioxidant. It, it activates NRF2, things like that, um, which are always a good thing because if you've got less damage in the cell, you've got less cellular repair switched on, and you're actually conserving NAD levels because you don't need as much to repair things. Yeah, so I I strongly recommend uh, ALA. And as I say, if I take this product, I'm going to drop off in the product I do take. Yeah, and also just to know, always make sure that you take the R version of ALA. You know, it has two versions. Yeah, please explain that. And I agree with you, but I'd love you to introduce that. Yeah, so you've basically got R or S form. So you, you, you'll see it on, well, to be honest, actually most labels don't put it on, um, which is a telltale sign. But if the, the good companies will, will, will label it. Um, and basically you've got ALA in its R form. It's like its natural form. And in its S form, it like stands for synthetic and it's like its unnatural form. Now, there's been plenty of studies to show that the, the R form is actually used readily by the body, but the S form isn't. And the S form doesn't have um, the efficacy that the R form does have. So some products have complete S ALA, which is absolutely useless. Some products have a 50-50 mix, and this is the most common form of, of R and S, um, which is okay, but it, you just have to bear in mind that you're getting 50% of the efficacy. The best form is R ALA, um, pure R ALA, and that's what we've got in our product. Um, the caveat with this is it's expensive. 
it's really expensive. And so that's nice. You've got the R form in there and the label doesn't say, so you might want to add that. Yeah, that's a good point. I should practice what I preach. (laughs) I see you've got vitamin C, but it's only 20 milligrams. So I guess that's just for manufacturing uh, and shelf life. Yeah, well, the vitamin C and the zinc, we kind of refer to them as supportive ingredients. And the, the sort of thinking behind that is that a lot of people already take a vitamin C and zinc supplement, like just in the multivitamin alone. So we were conscious that a lot of people want to continue taking multivitamins. So we didn't want to put a high dose of vitamin C and a high dose of zinc in. And then like they're, they're overdosing bait on, on, on things that co- people commonly take. But at the same time, we understand that some people might just take this product and actually it's better to have vitamin C and zinc at a, a level that's been proven to be efficacious for those people that don't get any vitamin C and zinc, um, but not put it in at such a high dose where it's going to tip other people over the edge. But I mean, in general, we we wouldn't recommend people to take um, products that contain the same ingredients, just because as you've already noticed, a lot of our ingredients are at the, the high level of the acceptable amounts to take already. The levels that you have are uh, in no way dangerous. Only, I mean, even even remotely, but the only possible exception to that is your, your green tea extract, the EGCG. So I also take that each day. Yeah. And uh, and that's one where I would definitely make sure I yeah, don't, don't take too up. much of it. Yeah. So maybe you want to just mention the 300 milligrams of EGCG that's there, maybe catechins, flav- flavanols. Yeah. And okay i mean the main the main um the main one we're interested in in the in the green tea extract is the egcg so um within our formula that's used to inhibit an enzyme called nnmt which is the enzyme that increases with age that methylates nicotinamide um and causes it to be excreted from the cell rather than recycled um and its expression of that enzyme increases with age and inhibiting then that enzyme promotes recycling of NAD within the cell. Um, so specifically that that is what that does in our formulation. And the level that it's at is is basically the highest level we can put it in at to comply with um, the legislation and the regulations in, in the, the countries that are our main markets, that being UK and US. The ingredient, I don't know what it does, is that so, uh, the botanical blend. I don't know why you have the, I can imagine why you have the botanical blend, uh, but maybe you want to comment on that. And I don't know about that rutin uh, from Sephora. Yeah, so Sephora Japonica, um, basically it, it's, it contains several powerful flavonoids, um, quercetin, rutin, troxrutin. Um, you've probably heard of quercetin more than rutin. And, and basically they were s- selected for our formulation because they actually activate the NAD salvage pathway enzyme NAMPT. So that's that critical rate limiting enzyme that declines with age. They are known to activate it. Um, so they are, you know, really important in our formulation to improve that recycling of NAD. Um, and on top of that, they have huge other benefits, um, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and quercetin it, itself um, also falls into, um, into a category of other active ingredients, which we won't go into, but they're called senolytics, uh, which actually remove senescent cells from the body, which are another huge discovery in, in age and research. Um, so it, it does have some other benefits there. But you don't have enough to... Um to act as a senolytic 
we have some some pretty high active ingredients in there, but I think the reason it says a botanical blend is I'm sure you can appreciate that we can't give away the values of everything that we'll put in, otherwise someone would directly copy it. <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah. It reminds me of El Nutra with their fast mimicking diet. People have been trying to engineer a, a vegan uh, keto diet and, and copy them also. So the other thing in my mind is I want to be sure when I take products that they're not full of heavy metals, particularly if the ingredients are sourced from China. Yeah. So, and so do you test, do you do lab analysis on the, on batches, et cetera? Because I really don't want. Yeah, no, that's really important. All of our product, it has all heavy metal analysis, microanalysis, everything is analyzed when the raw material comes in and then it's analyzed again when it's blended in the product just to make sure anything hasn't been contaminated or anything. And where are you doing the blending? Pardon? Where are you doing the blending? That it, it our manufacturer. So we have UK and US manufacturers in um in GMP FDA approved facilities. Okay, so you're definitely um checking the source ingredients yeah and I, I for think contamination this is where my sort of background in in drug development is quite handy because you know i we don't have to go to the level that drug development goes to but because that is the way i have been brought up so to speak it's incredibly important for me and when i see some of the things that go on in the supplement industry it does make you know make my toes curl <laughs> Last two questions. The first is, where can people find out more? Uh, so they can go to our website, which is www.nachido.com. And um, also they can they can follow us on social media. We've just launched um, a YouTube channel, uh, which has a couple of videos that I've done, mainly just sort of regurgitating some presentations I've done recently that people found it interest found interesting, kind of explaining NAD in more detail and how our product works in more detail, and and also people can can follow me. I generally um, find you can find me on Instagram most of the time. Uh, I try to to just um, keep having little updates of different scientific things that are happening in the field, but, you know, really try and put them more in, in the layperson um, terms. So people, people, a lot of different people can understand them. And my, my Instagram handles just at Dr. Nicola Conlon. It should have been like aging Geordie or something <laughs> like this, something catchy. <laughs> I'm sure there's quite a lot of people that are listening that are probably like, what on earth are they talking about? What is a Geordie? <laughs> the, tra the transcription list will have fun. And the very last question, easy one, right, is you said aging is an inflicted cascade disorder. Could you finish out by explaining what you meant by that? Yeah. So, So what I mean is that, there, there is not a single one thing that's happening and actually everything is highly interlinked. So if you take all the hallmarks of aging, you know, things like um, mitochondrial dysfunction, DNA damage, senescence, um, there's a huge list of them and um, it seems to, to be growing. Basically, you, you can't look at any of them in isolation because they're all somehow connected. So for example, one hallmark of aging is DNA damage. Well, that is linked to mitochondrial dysfunction because when mitochondrial dysfunction happens, you get um, reactive oxygen species, which damage things. So that leads to DNA damage, which is the other hallmark. And then uh, you've got 
DNA damage, which then has an impact on things like senescence, because when cells get too much DNA damage, they then become senescent. Um, then senescence then impacts on other other problems such as senescent cells secrete lots of inflammatory junk which leads to chronic inflammation which is another hallmark then you know chronic inflammation then goes back to DNA damage because it's damaging things and that then <laughs> and, and you can see it spirals so what I mean by inflected cascade is that it's like a cascade of one thing sets off another but then they all feed back to the first thing and make that worse which just makes the whole situation worse And that's why it's really important not to look at it um, with a molecular reductionism approach. (laughs) Yeah, it could be explained in kind of Scots in two words. The first word would be increasingly, and the second word, hmm, I want to keep a clean content for Apple, would begin with F and end with D. (laughs) Yeah. Would you agree? That's a simple explanation. That that would be the way to describe it. And do you not find that uh, depressing? Um, no, because I feel like I've got the power and the knowledge to do something about it, but I can completely understand why the majority of the population view aging as depressing and inevitable and something that we can't do anything about and therefore just say it's just like a natural life process and kind of give up. I don't view it like that at all because I know there are things you can do um, and there's a lot of really clever people working on that. Um, and that's my mission to, to teach people what is actually happening and how it shouldn't be viewed as depressing. And actually there are very simple things you can, you know, put into your own life that could make you age much better. The next generation or the generation coming up now, it's going to be a completely different world for them. Oh, absolutely. You know, we've got this life trajectory at the minute, which is, I always say, you know, we're born, we're learn, we're in, we retire, we expire. That is going to completely be thrown on its head, I think. That's what I would predict. Yeah. And unfortunately, we're kind of at a dark place at the moment where I read the, the average American now has 19 years in sickness towards end of life. Yeah. Two decades almost. Yeah. That's very sad. Yeah. That's nearly a quarter of your life. It's crazy. Like, you know, if somebody told you there was something you could do to stop that, wouldn't you do it? Absolutely. Yeah. Nicola, I greatly appreciate it. I'm sorry I overshot with the, the time today, and I really appreciate you coming on. No, it's been great. Really good to talk to you. Cheers. Thank you. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing.com.